You've been gifted a basket of fresh-picked apricots or plums or peaches, I wish, or maybe even apples. Well, that is a kindness indeed, but now what? Does the idea of making something of a basket of fruit give you anxiety? Are you overwhelmed with options? Or do you struggle to come up with even one idea? This episode is a bit of a baker's journey into what can be made and how one idea can open many more possibilities. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 255, Food and Freedom, Once a Week for Life. Hello folks, Stan Reed here. Welcome back to the show. If you like autumn cooking, but not messy kitchens, my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, can help with the mess. Mostly one-pot meals you can make, and with the cooler nighttime weather, the dinners are going to be perfect. Find your copy on Amazon or on the link on the show notes page. That's Cooking for Comfort, one-pot meals you can make. It didn't seem like an amazing winter as snowfall was concerned. And spring here didn't seem unusually rainy. But this summer has been a bumper crop of the fruit trees around here. Apricots like I've never seen and the pear and apple trees are loaded with fruit. The cherries were very good, and the blackberries are coming in strong, and apricots galore, and plums too. One of my neighbors gifted me a bag of apricots. They were bursting with juicy rectus. I like apricots, but that was a lot of apricots, so what do you do? I kept thinking sausage because I like the flavor of dried apricots in some sausage and pate recipes, but that wasn't an easy win. There had to be something more to make than just apricot jam or preserves, and for one, I don't want that much sugar and I rarely eat fruit spreads. What to do, what to do, what to do. People have said that I must never run out of ideas for what to make or what to do with ingredients. Well, that's just not the case. Now, usually, I do have some inspiration, but these apricots, they were a puzzle. Dr. Google for the start. What to do with fresh apricots. Now, I did come into this with at least some idea, and that was I had almonds on my brain. Cobbler and crisp were the first things Dr. Google showed me. Now, I'm not opposed to a crisp. In fact, I'm rather fond of the peach crisp recipe that I make, and we have peaches on the counter, so that seemed a bit redundant. But... Almonds. 
an apricot. So that put me in the mind of uh, my Austrian and Viennese dessert cookbook. Apricots are big in Europe, or at least European dessert recipes from a hundred years ago or so. An apricot tart. That sounds good. Make a gluten crust. Ah, crap. That's not what the recipe read, but that's what I saw. Well, it'll have to be gluten-free. Almonds. Almonds and apricot is a classic pairing, and almonds makes an excellent crust. So let's just review from where we started. What to make started with a crisp or a cobbler, and I knew I wanted almonds. I didn't want cobbler or crisp, but here's how the idea process starts. Baking them as halves of apricots is a good idea. A small amount of prep, and these are pretty small apricots to start with, so that was an easy one. Instead of the baked thing on top, like the biscuit topping for a cobbler, I wanted it on the bottom. Cake. That would be nice. Cake with apricots placed on top starts to look a little bit like a tart, and that's how I got the tart idea. Any place on the mental journey would have been a good place to land. I had already concluded that the gluten-free version of crisp and cobbler is an easy thing to do, but I really started to lean toward that tart idea. And with the tart idea, I get to make new-to-me stuff. So, and for this baker, that's exciting. I get it that not everyone finds making new recipes a thrill, but I sort of do. I like checking the recipe. Did the cook get it right? Is the procedure correct? Are the ratios right? Did they make sense? So these are the things I look at. As an aside, I was looking at a goulash dish someone sent me uh, as an example of what a good recipe page should look like. This was for a different project I was working on. It was fine, the page, Mostly the same as all the rest of the recipe pages. The pictures were nice, but the recipe for goulash was a horror. Not a speck of paprika. Paprika wasn't even mentioned. It didn't even say put the jar on the counter. It wasn't there at all. So frankly, between the elbow macaroni and the beefy tomato stew, it was about as Hungarian as I am Spanish. That means not at all. Well, back to baking. I found a good-looking, which means it made sense, almond shortbread crust recipe. Gluten-free baking can vary from gluten baking in subtle ways to drastic ways. The absence of gluten can really mess with the new to gluten-free Baker's expectations if wheat is the primary flour of experience. In some cases, and this almond pastry was one such case, little of the process resembles conventional mixing. Most pastry doughs are rolled out, 
just like pie doughs rolled out and laid in the pan, adjusted to fit the shape or form, and then you trim the edge a little bit and then on to the next step. In wheat dough mixing, it is almost never the case that the dough is a crumbly, shaggy mess, and then it is pressed into the pan to form a solid crust. Well, this almond pastry was exactly that kind of dough. Shortbread means crumbly, and since this had no gluten, it had no choice but to be crumbly. Now, this isn't going into a deep dive on gluten-free, but there's also no xanthan gum or psyllium husk, which would have changed the crumbly part quite rapidly. But this was shortbread crust, so we're not going to have that stuff. The author shared that she spent 10 minutes, I found that either hyperbolic or an embarrassing admission, to get the crust in the pan as smoothly and evenly as she wanted it. When I started pressing the dough into the pan, the tart pan, I at least found some empathy for her. I still think 10 minutes is excessive. So, successfully pressing the dough, this shaggy pile of buttery sand into the tart pan, I blind baked it. Blind baking means you bake the crust before you add the filling. Not all pie doughs get treated that way. All pie doughs probably would benefit from a short blind bake with the inside of the pie shell brushed with egg whites. The egg whites cook and form a barrier so the filling doesn't sog out the pie shell too soon. Now, egg whites is not a waterproof barrier, but it does help keep a crispier crust. It's also a few more steps. On to the fruit. The recipe called for quartering the apricots. Big apricots might make sense to quarter them. These are wee little things, so I have them. The recipe also read to place the apricots skin side up, sorry, skin side down, then sprinkle the sugar on top of the exposed apricot. I changed that step. I put the apricot pieces in a bowl, added the sugar, a bit of salt, some ground cardamom, and freshly grated nutmeg. Gave that all a toss together to make sure all the sugar coated as much as it could, and let them sit for about 15 minutes. Then place the apricot pieces in layered concentric circles in the cooled shell. Then I drizzled the syrup of the fruit on top, trying to make it as evenly dispersed as I could. The last addition in this recipe was some heavy cream. Really, very little, actually, and I might increase that next time. The recipe read to save some of the crust, this was the wheat crust, and use it as a streusel topping. I made my own streusel topping. I planned to do that, and as it happens, the crust that I made had nothing left over to use anyway. With the tart shell filled, I topped with more than uh, I topped it with more than an ample bit of the streusel bits and baked it. Now I also made a wee little tart, a little four-inch tart, to give to my fruit gifter. It pays to be my neighbor and give me ingredients. This tart would be easy to make 
and is easily suited to peaches or plums and possibly cherries. As the elements go, crust, streusel, filling, there are some basics here. Basics that gluten-free kinds of baking can ruin, but not exactly. A pastry crust, like that pie dough, is a biscuit. Work in the fat, butter in this case, into the dry ingredients. Add liquid if necessary. Don't overwork the dough. Streusel is basically a ratio of butter, flour, and sugar. Now, even here you can find, and you will find variations on the theme. A streusel adds crunch and flavor and visual texture, uh, and usually it complements the thing it's on top. Most common streusels are three parts flour, two parts butter, and one part sugar. Parts means a unit of measure. A quarter of a cup, uh, it could be a gallon. <laughs> that would be a lot. Since this is a total of six parts, three, two, one, uh, or if we use that quarter of a cup, we get a cup and a half of streusel. And frankly, that's a lot of streusel, although a cup and a half on this big tart might have been quite fine, actually. You can use tablespoons as the part since it does grow quickly in volume. Now, additions to a streusel are possible and, frankly, probably really desired. Uh, flavorings, cinnamon or cardamom or nutmeg or uh, clove or allspice or any or all of them. Uh, and in a few months, pumpkin pie spice, yes, I said it, might be good for pumpkin muffins. Small chopped nuts for additional flavor and texture is a possibility. Now, there isn't a rule as such, but a good piece of advice. A streusel should easily crumble onto the top of the baked good. It's excellent on muffins or pound cakes or pretty much anything that's standalone baked item. Now, that's the reason that suggestion makes sense. If your ratios if your ratio for butter is too high or your flour is too low, uh, instead of having a crumbly, sandy-looking kind of a streusel, which is easy to put on top of the baked thing, you end up looking like you end up getting something that looks like a compound butter, which tastes fine, and it's it becomes more difficult to plop and sprinkle places. You sort of have to glob it and dab it on. It doesn't sprinkle very well. When it's all baked, you, the butter may come out a little bit and that comes out on the sheet pan that you put the um, tart pan on. Uh, and that's a, another bit of advice. Always put a sheet pan under your whatever you're baking. Muffins, bread possibly not, but anything that's uh, in a container, um, pies, cakes, muffins, Put a, put a pan under it. It's just sometimes things happen and it makes the mess very easy to contain. All right, so macerating the fruit is a good way to draw water out of the fruit, which also increases the flavor in the fruit. In an apple pie, before you make the apple pie, the apple pie filling, the fruit might macerate half an hour and that liquid 
poured off. Now, uh, a half an hour of apples mass rating is going to give you, because you're going to probably have six cups of apples, you're going to get a lot of liquid out of that. It can, that liquid from the apple pie can be reduced down, so it's kind of thick and, and syrupy, and the sugar in the water is going to end up making the thing get, get, um, get thick. Then when it's cool, add that back to the apples, mix that up, put that into the filling, and finish your pie. And you could also turn that sauce, uh, turn that juice into kind of a sauce or a glaze for the finished pie. There are quite a few recipes and quite a few procedures for apple pies. The process of letting sugar draw off the water is common for fruit to be baked uh, and is a pretty common procedure for something called a clafouti, which I'll mention again in a few minutes. If you add cherries to a muffin, sprinkle sugar on the cherry pieces. Let it sit five or 10 minutes because cherry pieces aren't that big. Drain off the liquid which would ruin the muffin batter wet to dry ratio, and then bake the muffins till they're done. Now, in the case of those cherries, you're probably not going to get enough liquid to do anything more than, say, add a shot of uh, good rum to that and make a shooter. One advantage gluten-free crusts have over gluten crusts is they don't need four hours to rest once they're mixed. From idea to plate can be much faster in time without the wheat crust. Another idea is to make a clefouti, which I mentioned. It's I'm trying to think. If you've never had a clefouti, if you've had a clefouti, you know what that is. If you've never had one, it's it's sort of like a custardy thin pancake batter. It has eggs and cream and a little bit of flour. And then it's poured into a small, uh, like a ceramic or, uh, ceramic, I think ceramic is probably the most traditional kind of baking vessel, like a little tart, ceramic tart pan. Um, and then, then the fruit, the fruit's in the pan. You put the juice, the custard on top, and you bake that. Doesn't take very long. It's a nice little brown. Uh, cool it a little bit. Dust with powdered sugar. They're really pretty easy to do, and they are quite tasty. And you can put anything into them. Nearly um, apricots would have been a good choice for a clafouti. Now it might be that you're not convinced you can solve the fruit of abundance problem. So what pairs with that fruit? Stone fruits seem to pair well with cinnamon and nutmeg when baked. Added as slices in a cake might also be nice. Uh, it's particularly nice for apples to put them, um, sort of push them in, into the cake batter and then bake the cake that way. Too many berries? Blackberry bush giving you lots? Now that seems easily to be cobbler territory. For a bit more labor, berry bars with streusel topping and lots of it is a fine treat. And as it happens, the base is 
a biscuit, like a pie dough. Think of a flavor complement or a contrast that you like with that particular food. That's your foundation. Now, how do you build on that flavor profile foundation? What are the complements to the flavor and the texture? Hot cobra filling and a crunch is good. And that's one of the things, now a, a cobbler, it's, it, technically it's still a biscuit topping, but the ratios are different so that it gets kind of caramely and crispy on top a little bit. Uh, and then you've got the, the sort of fluffy cobbler topping, crisps. A crisp is more like a streusel topping designed to get now, I don't know if you, the, the benchmark, this is a really crazy thing to say. It's like the rectangle pizza in school, <laughs> if you are of a particular age. The apple crisp in school was freaking amazing. And it took me years to finally get close to what I think I remember. And who knows if it's actually close, but it feels close as the memory goes. So that that streusel topping for a crisp with with the good carameliness and the crispy parts and the oats, they just man, it's just whew, fun stuff. When the apples and pears come in, soon, I expect, I'm already planning the gluten-free apple strudel. Now, I don't really speak German, but I can say Apfelstrudel mit Schlag, which I'm told means apple strudel with whipped cream. At least I hope that's what it means. <laughs> if not, I've said something really interesting to somebody. So, your road to success is to keep it simple. And this this apricot tart was not a highly sweet. So Austrian dessert's not going to be sweet. It's the Austrian Viennese kinds of things, this, the, the famous soccer tort. Talk about not sweet. That Boy, howdy, that thing is not sweet. Rich as can be, but not sweet. Um, so that's that. I appreciate that. Um, a, a biscuit kind of a thing. If you if you mix the biscuit, you put the, the fat in the flour, uh, a little sugar, flour, um, it can or cannot have egg and or water. Depends on what it is you're going for. But that's a pretty easy thing to mix up and add some flavor to that, add some spice to that. Um, you could add chopped nuts to that to give it also some additional texture when, they, when it cooks, when it bakes. Um, your filling, your topping can be the fruit, and then you have a streusel. Uh, and then there, there's, there's success to be had in simple ways to go. Uh, and with our slice of apricot tart, a little bit of unsweetened whipped cream on top to keep the not sweet part. And the fat helped carry some of the flavor of the almond. And it was a very simple, elegant looking, tasty dessert. And it was easy to do. And you can do it too. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add a link for my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 255. 
Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. You can be a patron with the Patreon by following the support link on the show notes page. There is, it's a theme it seems, no chef's table today. Uh, I did recently post uh, a little tour of the rooftop garden for the patrons. Um, and the cool winter night, <laughs> cool winter nights, not really, but it's some nights it's getting below 55 and the tomatoes are decidedly not pleased about that. Um, so tomatoes might be near the end, which is sort of sad and tragic, but so it goes. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.